Hey friends, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are, another week, another episode for Vital Studies. Hey friends, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are, another week, another episode of our Bible study series we call the Bible for Grown-Ups Only. Coming up, we're not just in any other week, we're coming up on Holy Week, my favorite time of the year. I, I truly mean that. The reason why it's my favorite time of year is because... It's an opportunity to gather with my friends and retell the story of Jesus and his resurrection. It's central to my faith, and I believe it should be central to all of our faith. And I think it's important for us to truly understand what's going on in the events in Jesus' life, not reading them from the 21st century trying to get into that first century mindset and really understand what these days must have been like. That's what we're going to do over the next couple of episodes. Tonight, we're going to look at what happens just after Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life and raises Lazarus from the dead. I'll see you on the other side. So I'm going to go ahead and begin uh, this evening. What we're going to do... I just want to say this on the outset. Maybe I'm stretching my time somehow. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever tried to cook a pot of beans or maybe uh, baked potatoes. And <clears throat> you you worked on them and you put some effort into them and you feel like you did it right. But then uh, you're really worried about, did the beans actually get cooked or did the potatoes actually get soft? <laughs> did it go long enough? <laughs> That's uh, kind of how I feel about uh, the, tonight's lesson. I'm, I'm not quite sure if I let the beans soak long enough or the potatoes roast long enough. I'm not sure. I'm just going to start talking, and we're going to see. <laughs> I don't know. And the reason why is because I want to talk about a specific period of time here that takes place in the Holy Week narrative, which we're about to celebrate. But I don't want to bleed over into other stories that will focus on over the next week. So I'm, I'm trying to keep this period of time uh, separate, but also without going into just so minute detail about significance that it's no good to anybody, just for the sake of making the study longer. <laughs> so I'm going to try. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to talk about this period of time that happens. Now, I mentioned on Sunday in our worship service, we had looked at the resurrection of Lazarus. And I had mentioned that that story is going to go together with tonight's story that's going to go together with next Sunday's story, next Thursday's story, and then Resurrection Sunday. And what, that, what I'm saying is, is what we're going to kind of do is actually look at scripture and walk in a figurative sense these last few days, weeks, and miles with Jesus as his public ministry comes to an end and his confrontation with the religious leaders begin, which will ultimately lead to his death on the cross. And this is, I think, also kind of one of those stories that so often... Um, it just gets overlooked in our kind of highlight cliff notes version of the Bible because most of us, if we've been around church for a long time, 
We know the story of Lazarus and Lazarus being raised from the dead. Many of us know uh, that story probably because we were required um, to record or memorize a Bible verse. And that story, the story of Lazarus, contains John 11.35, which is the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. That's right. He's weeping over the loss of Lazarus. That's where that... That Bible verse comes from. Many of us grew up in church, know that story. We know, many of us know the story of Palm Sunday and about uh, Jesus' triumphant entry, entry to Jerusalem at the beginning of that final Passover week. Many of us know the story of the Last Supper. Many of us know the story of the women coming to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday and finding the stone rolled away know these stories, there's other stories to be told that kind of tie some of these things together. And that's what we're going to do in our times together between now and Resurrection Sunday. So what we're going to do tonight is actually um, look at what's going on right after Jesus raises Lazarus up until right before his entry into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Okay, so what happens between this event that ends up being a big deal, the the raising of Lazarus ends up being a humongous deal when it comes to animosity from the religious leaders towards Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think it could be argued that the raising of Lazarus is the event that takes place that finally convinces the religious leaders that something now has to be done or this deal with Jesus is going to get out of hand. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. But let's just step back. Remember, I think we've got a little extra time here. Let's just step back and paraphrasing. Let me catch us up with the story of Lazarus highlighting the important points of that story And then we're going to jump into our scripture tonight. We're going to look at uh, stories that we find in John chapter 11 and chapter 12. And really, if we look with the right set of eyes or we have ears to hear, we might see that this period of time here in scripture is like a calm before the storm. Okay, If, If the Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem is going to light a fuse, this is right before that happens. So let's get from Jesus raising a man from the dead to Jerusalem. Okay, before we can do tonight's scripture, John 11 and 12, let me step back again, step back in again. This is actually also a John, beginning of John 11 uh, story. Tonight's going to pick up at 45. But let me just summarize 1 through 44 there of 11 for you very quickly. Uh, again, you may be familiar with the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is a close, close friend of Jesus. He is the brother of Mary and Martha that we find in Scripture. And we know that the three of them, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, they live in a little town that's two miles from Jerusalem, a town called Bethany. I'm so sorry, I don't have any of the big paper to print out. But if you could just see where I'm pointing, this white area here is Jerusalem and Bethany's right here. It's just two miles away, right? You can think about in your head how far is two miles from where we are right now. 
And also remember that this is a story that comes to us from first century Palestine, a, 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 a grouping of societies that for the most part was fairly pedestrian. Walking two miles was nothing. The, two miles was nothing to people in first century Palestine. So what, what I'm saying is, is Bethany is just right outside Jerusalem's back door. And it's on the road running north and south along the Jordan River leading up to the Sea of Galilee. And at the time of the festival, people begin flooding in. Those that were devout Jewish people would begin a walk, a ride on a donkey, a ride on mules, whatever. They would begin a trek from the countryside of the Sea of Galilee south down the Jordan River through Bethany into Jerusalem so that they could celebrate the holy festival of Passover in Jerusalem proper. So when this is going on, not only is it happening right outside the Temple Mount, but it's also happening at a time where the city of Bethany is having this tremendous influx of people traveling up and down the road. Up and down the road, back and forth, Jerusalem to up to the, to the uh, countryside up around the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And during this time, uh, Lazarus has died. And word is sent to Jesus by Mary and Martha... That, that Jesus might come to Bethany and heal Lazarus from his sickness. But Jesus doesn't do that, and he actually waits four days. Now, we had mentioned on Sunday that there, this is not biblically referenced. This is not some tradition in Christianity. It is just a folklore tradition of the time that a spirit might wait around three days in the event that a body might be resuscitated and that the spirit might re-enter the body. But, you could do the deductive reasoning here, if it's on the fourth day, the spirit's already left. So if Jesus is able to come to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead after four days of being dead, there's no question that this was some sort, no question that this wasn't some sort of parlor trick, some sort of medical miracle, some sort of medical coincidence by which Lazarus somehow must have just been really sick, maybe in a bad coma, but somehow or another was revived. No, if he was dead and in a tomb and he had been dead for four days, he's dead all the way dead, right? And that's symbolic for Jesus. Because as he comes and actually brings Lazarus out of the tomb, calls him out of the tomb, rather, he reminds Mary and Martha, as well as us, that I am the resurrection and the life. It's an interesting point here. It's something I've always kind of, it's, ta it's taken me a very long time to kind of understand, at least in my uh, less mature understanding of scriptural stories, I was always kind of confused because why would you have that story of Jesus raising Lazarus 
and saying, I'm the resurrection and the life, when he says that, he's not actually referring to his own resurrection. And, and, and as, as I've contemplated and studied, one of the things I think that I realized is doing these things so close together are in fact supposed, you are supposed to tie them together. Because if Jesus, can, if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, as well as himself, then that power is not just limited to Jesus, right? Had Jesus not raised anybody from the dead, but Jesus himself was raised from the dead, then really what evidence does that give us other than God in a bod is really powerful? But who's to say that that can happen to us? With Jesus offering new life to Lazarus, he's showing what he's offering to us as well. That the power over life and death is not just restricted to Jesus as God in a human body, but if our lives are in Jesus, that same resurrection power is available to us. It's kind of what the story's trying to teach us today. But when it took place... It freaked a lot of people out. Remembering how close we are to Jerusalem, remembering the activity that's, being, that's taking place here as we're about to celebrate this coming Passover, right? And also remember that uh, funerals during this time, people's lives were lived much more in community than they are today. And we have extended family, they had extended family networks that, not so that we don't have them today, they were much more vibrant than they were, than they are today, they were in the first century. And so when, when people would lose a member of their family, the community itself would turn out in this period of mourning. Now also remember that the period of mourning over death is seven days. So during the seven days, people would be coming and going, not only through Bethany on their way to Jerusalem, but also because they're coming to pay their respects to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I'm sorry, Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus. Right? So, so when Jesus shows up in Bethany and raises Lazarus, there's a crowd of all different kinds of people that see it actually happen with their own eyes. And I think this really is what gets the ball rolling for what happens in Jerusalem. Now, let me pick up that story right after Lazarus. Let's pick that up at 45 and 11. Okay. The reason why I want to do this, I want to point out when you see transformations uh, in portions of scripture, you can tell usually by how it, that uh, paragraph starts whether uh, that of those events are intended to be represented as happening relatively right the next thing that happened was this. Or you might read and you might read a story in scripture and then the next portion of scripture might say, and sometime later, right? And when scripture does that, it's trying to signal the reader, these two things are not to be read chronologically. Maybe thematically, not chronologically. However, when we do see words like therefore, that often means you're to take whatever was just told to you 
and the story previously and butt it up against what's happening next, right? It's like uh, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Therefore, this happened, this happened, this happened as a result. Because make, does that make sense? I hope so. So 45 is this next subsection of 11 is actually going to represent. This is something that happens Maybe not in the, the next morning of, but in close proximity to the raising of Lazarus. This is the next significant event that takes place. And we're going to find that these events uh, become identified more and more by their relationship and time together. Because as this story gets to the cross, our time is going to compress and we're going to look at scripture sometimes story to story thematically that might represent months of time in between. But as we walk to Jerusalem and we get closer and we finally get to that Palm Sunday story, all of scripture becomes this wide time-wise. It just happens in a week. right? We're now going by days at a time. So we also want to kind of keep this focus, understanding that as we read this portion of scripture as we go through it, our scope of time is narrowing and narrowing, tighter and tighter. Okay? Therefore, after Lazarus, therefore many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus had done and believed him, raising Lazarus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I'm going to read this one and then I'm going to stop and explain then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. <sighs> okay, it's important for us to point out these three groups of Jewish leaders so that we do not... This is one of the things I think that theologians and Bible teachers today are really trying to correct from some, some of the previous theologians and Bible teachers that maybe we might have learned from as Christians. And I'm not saying you've ever heard language like this. I can say that I have. And if you have, it's not uncommon. We need to identify these groups of people in our understanding just to understand that they have different motivations and they are different types of people. And this is just not monolithically the Jews killed Jesus. Right? That is... that. That is, such a, that is the, one of the worst Christian things that could be said. Because the simple truth of the matter is, they're, they're, the simple truth of the matter is, especially in first century Palestine, there is no such thing as the Jews, right? Not only that, all of the people that follow him are of what religion? They're Jewish. Jesus is an Orthodox Jew. We know there are Pharisees that whenever they encounter Jesus, become converted. So there's no uh, one size fits all in this thing. And, and I just really, anytime I get an opportunity to talk about this, it's one of the things that's been taught to me. And it's something that really has made a difference in the way I see this story. And I want to share it with you because I think it's important for you to share these distinctions as well. This is not about hating the Jews. It is about understanding the complexity of what's going on in their lives. 
So there's three groups of people here mentioned. There are chief priests, there are Pharisees, and there are Sanhedrin. Now I'm going to, base it, I'm going to make this very uh, oversimplified. Okay, Chief priests are the ones who are actually in charge of, of temple religious work. Okay, The other two groups, well, the Sanhedrin, would, we, we might think of the Sanhedrin more as um, legal experts, people who were experts in the law. The Pharisees were more religious experts. Okay? But these two groups of people had different views of, of, of Hebrew scripture, and they had different views of how God works in our lives, and they had different views about resurrection. The Pharisees believe in a resurrection. The Sanhedrin do not believe in a resurrection. Okay? But the, but the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin as groups of people, they don't necessarily wield power as groups. It's rather the individuals within those groups. Now, chief priests are either going to be Pharisees or a, a member of the Sanhedrin, but not all Pharisees and not all Sanhedrin are chief priests. Is that got me? Okay, cool. Right? I'm trying, I know this sounds like gobbledygook. I get it. I get it. I'm trying to point out these people have different motivations for hating on Jesus. And we're going to discover here in just a second what those are. Okay? What are we accomplishing, they ask? Here's this man performing many signs. Again, they're talking about this in relation, direct relation to the healing of Lazarus. If we let him go on like this, and I want us to listen to their language here. If we let them go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then what will happen? And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Time. Whose temple? Right? When did it become our temple? Never. It's God's house. It's so interesting, right? And what's, what's, what I also think is interesting here, and I think that this shows that I really feel like this is identifiable to me in the modern uh, perspective because I feel like people act this way in, the modern, in modern times as well. These are folks that are so blinded by their own ambition and by their own ego and by their own greed, they don't see what Jesus is doing as a blessing. And they're not necessarily seeing it as a curse. What they are seeing it as, as a threat to their individual power. You mean to tell me God is working in this world, and, but he's doing so in such a way that I might lose my power and influence? Well, one, that can't be from God. And two, I'm going to do everything I can to stop it. That's what's in these guys' mind. They're, if Jesus comes along and people start believing in him, instead of us, we are going to be out of a job. And Shedrach, I'm not sure when the last time you did any farming was. We're going to be in trouble. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who's going to come back up in our story later, down the road. He's the high priest for that year. Okay, He's the, he's the chief. He, this is the guy who is in charge, 
of the religious Jewish people. (laughs) He says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, as Christians, we read that and we go, what a beautiful sacrifice that God made for us. That one man did die. That we, the nation of God's people, didn't perish. That's not what Caiaphas is saying. Caiaphas isn't going, praise God for the perfect sacrifice that our sins might be forgiven. That's not what the high priest of high priests is even saying. He's saying, you guys just need to chill out. Look, we just need to kill one guy. We kill this one guy and everything is back to easy street for us. The high priest of high priests wants Jesus dead. Not for the opportunity of resurrection and therefore reconciliation with God, but that he could keep his job. So blinded by personal desire, blind ambition, consuming ego, that God literally can be standing before them and they can't see it. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. He had already made this comment about Jesus earlier in his year as high priest. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, remember where we are in the time, right? Therefore, in other words, right after Lazarus was raised from the dead and we all heard about it and met and talked about it, immediately after, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This is, the, this is the actual point where the decision has been made to actually physically do something about the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Again, pointing out, Jesus is not going to let The religious leaders dictate the end of his life. He's going to be in control when that happens. If he sticks around before the Passover, then the events that take place during the Passover, which we Christians now tie to our Christian faith, wouldn't have taken place. Jesus would have died before the Passover. See how these pieces are kind of coming together? As an Orthodox Jew... Jesus would have faithfully obeyed the requirement of tending that annual pilgrimage festival of Passover. And again, like I had mentioned, as men and women began moving from the countryside, right, into Jerusalem, they start looking around for Jesus. They expect Jesus to be there. Residents of the city of Jerusalem, no doubt, have now spread these wildfire stories about Lazarus. The city is buzzing with talk of the intentions of the religious leaders. An open announcement has actually been made and, uh, that uh, the arrest is, is circulating for the arrest of Jesus. If anyone is to be seen, if he's to be seen, he's to be captured. With a crowd feel, filling the city of Jerusalem, these 
Jesus' stories have absolutely added to the excitement, stirring things to a fever pitch. Because there will be a showdown. And what about his supporters from Galilee? These people coming with him from the countryside. Those people who have for the last three years been hearing him preach and seeing him heal and watching and living with him. What about these supporters from Galilee? What will they do? What about these 12 followers of his that calls disciples? Are they going to defend him? What will this do to the upcoming Passover celebration? But from Jesus' point of view, his public ministry is now finished. It's completed. No longer will he provide miraculous signs for the people. No longer will we hear of new audience of, of Jews believing in Jesus. He's finished. And now suspend uh, concentrated private time with those members of families like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, friends, followers who know him and trust him and believe him. And as we're going to discover in the coming times together, Jesus will indeed return to the public square during the Passover feast. Following that triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which we're going to talk about on Sunday, but it's only to give an impassioned belief, plea for belief. Because after that moment, no longer will he provide public signs that will evoke their belief. And after that night in that upper room, the next time that he appears in public, he'll be a prisoner. That's for coming days. So let's just finish here with this last story. Getting us right up to Palm Sunday. Chapter 12, six days before the Passover, okay? Again, pay attention when, when subsections are started, when new chapters are started in ancient texts, especially in the Bible, pay attention to those words that begin that text because often, not always, often it can give you a clue as to where you are chrono chronologically within the narrative. Six days before Passover, okay, one week before Holy Week. Here we are. One week before Holy Week. This is what's happening in the story right now, so to speak, one week to go. Six days before the Passover, Jesus again came to, to Bethany, where Lazarus lived. Not where Lazarus had died. I think it's from whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they were going to have a dinner in his honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. And again, just for context, if you don't know, people in the first century didn't sit around tables like we are now. They actually had, it was on the floor, it was a, a U-shaped table called a, a reclinium, a triclinium, sorry, triclinium. And they'd lay on their sides and eat like that. Like you might have seen that in the movies. That's, that's how that's done. So that's happening, and they're all reclining at the table, and Mary, friend of Jesus, Martha's sister, Lazarus's sister, uh, took about a pint of pure nard, which was an expensive perfume. It's also kind of like myrrh. It's used to anoint uh, the dead. Okay? It's a balm, a perfume that's used to preserve the dead body. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Now, if you've been with us before, you might be able to do what, uh, at least at their time, what that would have, would have been like, right? Because a denarii, one coin issued by the Roman Empire, was a day's wages. So, 300 denarii, let's say, that's about what this perfume would have been worth. But we think 300, like 300 is a lot, even $300, but $300 isn't a year's wages. Right? It's very expensive. It's very expensive. It's so expensive, friends, that it is, it is a reckless sacrifice. Now, please don't get this story confused. I think this story is also recounted in Matthew and Mark. There's a story like this one in Luke, I think Luke 15 or 13, where a woman comes and pours out perfume, an alabaster jar of perfume. That is a different story. That's a different time. Okay? This is the time right before the Passover when they're all in Bethany at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. It's a different thing. It's a different thing. Okay? In that story, I believe the story is that the woman was a former prostitute and the the uh, perfume that she, uh, was, that she uh, sacrificed was business expense. It was needed for her to be attracted, attractive, rather, to, uh, to her customers. So that's why that expensive um, sacrifice is made. It's what's happening here, too, as well. The difference is that Martha is indicating something about Jesus, about his upcoming death. And Jesus knows this. Jesus understands what's going on. Although, again, and we talk about this all the time, the disciples following Jesus around during this time, as he continues to talk about he's about to go and die, still do not believe him. And this story kind of stands in contrast to that. And it's not that they don't believe Jesus. I'm so sorry. That's, I did not use the right word there. They did not understand him. When Jesus talked about his life sacrifice, the disciples kept thinking he's talking about a transition by which he'll become Jesus. He will be Jesus of Nazareth who will now become the new David. There'll be a transition that there'll be a death to his old life that way. They, Jesus isn't going to die on a Roman cross. He's the Messiah, right? We're in trouble if the Messiah hangs on a Roman cross. We have hitched our wagon to the wrong star here, gang. Right? And I really think that doubt is what prevented them from seeing this. Mary sees it. Mary understands what Jesus has said, and she acts accordingly. Now, <clears throat> whenever people are anointed with this nard, they're normally anointed with the head. But she actually anoints Jesus with her feet, right? With his feet, rather, right? And she uses her hair. And I just wanted to really briefly tell you what the significance of that. One, um, among those who were religiously uh, or orthodox Jewish people at the time, it's still true today, um, unbinding your hair as a woman, letting your hair down, letting your hair be seen in its uh, full length would have been considered offensive. Uh, it, not offensive, but well, it would have been offensive, but it would have been considered immodest on the part of the woman to, in public, unbind her hair, okay? The other thing is, 
That yes, when people um, are anointed, they're anointed on the head. She anoints with the feet. And the reason why is because, remembering we're talking about an extremely pedestrian society. We're also talking about a society, a lot of people, whom if they were shod, probably wore sandals and not closed shoes. There wasn't anything such as cotton uh, athletic socks, right? So if you just think about our feet today and how icky other people's feet might be to you today, imagine how icky people's feet might be to you in the first century Palestine. Right? Icky, icky. So the servants are the ones that wash the feet. Right? The servants are the ones that are taking care of the feet. So when she takes this expensive perfume and she pours it on his feet, wipes it with her hair, she is wrapping all of this Jewish symbolism up in this one act. She's showing this um, illogical, reckless sacrifice. She's showing her humility and her uh, posture against Jesus as the Messiah. And she indicates that she is, in fact, his servant. That's interesting that one of the things we're going to talk about on Thursday is Jesus will turn right around in the Last Supper and he's going to mimic two of the things that Mary did. Because Mary breaks an open, opens up, breaks apart this nard to share it and pours it. And she's also going to wipe the feet of her uh, friends, of her friend as a servant. And in that Last Supper, Jesus is going to do those exact same things. The bread is going to be broken. The cup is going to be poured out. Jesus is going to serve his friends by washing their feet. These things parallel each other because, because they're important to us. Meanwhile, uh, verse 9, as we close here, a large crowd of Jews found that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing him. Now one of the things I think is interesting about this whole look of Lazarus and, and the story of the disciple or of the, of the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the Pharisees and their conflict with Jesus, one of the things that we never see is we, we don't ever see the, the religious leaders doubting Jesus' power. In our entire story tonight, not one time did we ever see one of the religious leaders goes, I don't believe he's actually doing it. But they were so blinded by their ambition, like I'd mentioned earlier, they had God staring them in the face. And they just couldn't see it. Anyway, that's what gets us to this very next interesting story. And the reason why I've really been trying to build up the story of Bethany as this crossroads, this place as people are coming down from Galilee and coming into Jerusalem for the Passover is because it makes what happens on Sunday uh, make sense. Because if all of these religious leaders, if all these people in Jerusalem are kind of hating on Jesus, who are the people that show up and actually throw ro ro their robes down so that his donkey might walk on their clothes instead of the ground. Saying, Hosanna. 
Hosanna to him who comes, right? Proclaiming him the Messiah. And how can these same people be the same people that at the end of the week are going to be in the Temple Mount yelling, crucify him? Well, I'm going to give it away real quick. They're not the same people. People that show up on Sunday are not the same people that are calling crucify him at the end of the week. But that's for two more lessons that we'll cover over the next uh, couple of weeks. Anybody have any questions? Thank you. You know, as a pastor and a teacher, uh, over several years doing this, I can't imagine how many times I've told and retold this story. It's, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And every time I retell it, and every time I think about the retelling, I'm always struck by the fact that the religious leaders that were confronted with Jesus were so blinded by personal ambition and greed that they couldn't see God standing there right in front of them. And if there's little hope for them, what does that say about us and our attempts to truly see God standing directly in front of us? It requires us to challenge our eyes and our hearts and truly find Him right there, right now in front of us. Anyway, it's something to think about. Hey friend, I hope you'll join us next week. We're going to be going right into Holy Week. We're going to have a couple of extra episodes next week. We're going to have a Holy Week special in which we're going to look at Palm Sunday, and we're going to have an episode on Monday, Thursday, the celebration of the Last Supper, Good Friday, and of course, Resurrection Sunday. So we can have kind of a complete set, the breakdown of Holy Week. I hope you'll join us over the next couple of weeks. And until then...